0: So, Teresa read the passage, it should be at the top of your outline, it should say John Gray's series on the book of Acts, continued, Acts chapter 2, part 1 of 3. If uh, I'm going to suggest to John that we divide the chapter 2 into three parts, uh, it might be four parts depending on how far I get today. So I may just get through the first four verses today, or I may get through the first 13 verses today. My hope is to get through the first 13 verses. Now, before we get into it, uh, I'm doing this right with the mics and all this, just I, I'm, I'm good? Okay. Um, I can't see very well, but I think it's just my eyes are going bad, period. I uh, had a really bad flu for the last week and a half and haven't been able to uh, get any sleep or anything, although I had a lot of good meetings. So, but I I am very exhausted, so may the Lord please help me keep my mind on uh, the outline and and to uh, cover some good points and not go crazy. Um, So, again, so as we get into some background on Acts 2 from Acts 1 and so forth, uh, some of this may have already been covered by John. So, when you hear the book of Acts referred to, you generally hear three titles and this, this simply comes from the fact that most people shorten things. I, I meant to use uh, John Bradbury, but he's not here today. But, you know, most of us call him John Bradbury when his name is Jonathan. You know, uh, I remember when uh, I first uh, had Catherine start leading the young ladies in the campus ministry in Bowling Green about a year before we started courting um, I liked Catherine, and everyone had called her Kathy for years. And a lot of the people we are associated with that back then still call her Kathy, even though I've called her Catherine for over 40 years now. So uh, people will, you know, like if you call the name church Grace Christian Fellowship, people will just call it Grace Fellowship or Grace Christian or whatever. People automatically shorten names and titles and stuff like that. So... Um, The traditional, what you might call the official name, among Christian uh, Westerners is the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, However, most people either shorten it to the Book of Acts or just Acts. Now, uh, that's the common uh, name, but uh, in... in, uh, but I want to give it a more descriptive name. I, if, if I were naming it, I would actually call it The Continuing Acts of Jesus Christ by the Agency of the Holy Spirit Working Through the Agency of the Apostles and the Church. Now, there's uh, approximately three scripture passages listed there, and let's talk about each of those. You might recognize John 13 through 16, is is the Apostle John's uh, coverage of the Last Supper, and the if you may know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke pro- probably all of you know this by now. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels because the Greek prefix SYN or SIN or SYM uh, refers to the same. Okay. Uh, the suffix, uh, uh, it, what's the suffix, symphonic gospels, right? Or the, no, synoptic gospels, what am I talking about? The about? The suffix optic, I'm thinking of symphonies. Uh, but symphony is made from the Greek word for the same and the Greek word phonos for sound. And what a symphony is, is a lot of musical instruments uh, playing something that works well together in harmony, even though they're different. Uh, they're playing the same piece or whatever, working well. Synoptic Gospels refers to the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke see Jesus in a very similar light. Most of what's in Mark is covered in Matthew, although it tends to be more detailed in Matthew. Luke has approximately nine chapters of extra material, but about... uh, 15 or so of the chapters of Luke cover the same materials as Mark and Matthew do. John had already read the three synoptic Gospels when he wrote his Gospel, and so he is purposely trying to point to a different view of Jesus than than Matthew, Mark, and Luke are focusing on. Mark tends to focus on Jesus as the servant who come to to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew tends to uh, be a covenant lawsuit. Most evangelicals kind of get 25% of the way to the point by saying Matthew is written to the Jews to help them see that Jesus was the Christ. Matthew is actually written as a covenant lawsuit against the Jews to say you rejected your Messiah and you crucified him and you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> and uh, Mark ha- or Luke has some of that aspect, but Luke is the only book, Luke and Acts are the only two books written by a non-Hebrew person. So Luke is what they w- would be call a barbarian, which is usually nowadays translated a Greek, a, non, a non-Jew. And Luke uh, had a nickname of the beloved physician, but he was a convert to Judaism, then to Christianity. Now, no, no one knows, it's, it's uh, a debatable proposition, John might have covered this already, whether Luke and Acts were written as one narrative to begin with and then split later, or they were written as two narratives uh, initially. I happen to think they were written as two narratives initially, partly because um, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 53, cover almost exactly all the same things that Acts 1, one through nine cover. However, Luke uses mostly different words. In one ear, first Jerusalem as by its name. The other, Jesus says, stay in the city, implying Jerusalem. And uh, in both cases, he uses the phrase, the promise. There are some phrases in both Luke 24, 44 through 53, and Acts 1, one through nine, that are the same verbiage, but most of it is quite different verbiage, co- but covering exactly the same message, that Jesus gave final commandments, instructions, uh, but not, they weren't just suggestions. They were commandments just before he departed and ascended to be with the Father. So Luke, uh, unlike the, the other 25 books, Luke, Luke, that is the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, unlike the other 25 books of the New Testament, does not have the same Hebrew mindset. And Luke, from the very beginning, emphasizes that the gospel is for all the nations. And so Acts, uh, what we're going to see in Acts 2 is this. The promise that Jesus is talking about in Acts 1, that Acts 2 uses that phrase, the promise, three times, that goes back to include all the promises of God from the very first promise of God in Genesis 3.15 called the Proto-Evangel. Okay? And so from one man's sin... God intervened and confronted Adam and Eve about their sin, and He asked them, If you notice, He didn't say, How did you know? He said, Who told you? Who told you you were naked? Because a person had told them they were naked, the devil. Uh, And He then gives them a promise of the coming of the Messiah. I'll put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between his seed and your seed, and you shall, uh, he shall bruise you on the heel and you shall crush him on the head. And so, and so Adam is the prototypical human of all the humans. And so getting baptized in the Holy Spirit, what happened in the day of Pentecost, first for the 120 then for the 3,000 that appeared, or that responded, I'm sorry, to uh, Peter's message, and then throughout the book of Acts to thousands of others, both Jews and Gentiles, is the fulfillment of all the promises of God in the whole Bible for everyone. And because what, what was lost in the fall of man and the sinfulness of man was fellowship and intimacy with God. And what is restored in the gospel, and especially in the the corresponding experience called being baptized in the spirit, is a deep spirit-filled intimacy with God. And whereas God at uh, Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20, uh, what what the Greeks called Pentecost, What God wrote, the law of God, on tablets of stone external to man, commanding man from the outside. At Pentecost, God wrote the law of God on man's inward spirit and heart and gave man the desire to know, please, and obey and follow the law of God. It's the undoing of all the damage. And so uh, Acts 2 is a most, most important chapter. Uh, Of course, you're familiar, I'm sure, to use another example. In Genesis 12, God calls one man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarai, Abram and Sarai, who become Abraham and Sarah. He calls them uh, out of Ur of the These Actually, God had called Abraham's father, and he had begun the journey. And God calls Abraham... And he gives him uh, the commission to become a people among the peoples, a nation among the nations, a father to the nations. But he doesn't call Abraham just for him and his progeny, Israel's sake, but he promises in Genesis 12:3, "In you all the families of the earth will be blessed." And so as we get into Genesis 12:2, hopefully today, uh, we're going to see that the coming of Pentecost, the coming of the baptism in the Spirit, was for all the families of the world. It was the fulfillment of the promises of God given to Abraham, repeated to Isaac, and then repeated to Jacob. And uh, it's the promises of God to Moses, to the, et cetera, all the way through. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 20, that in Christ all the promises of God are yes and amen. Okay? So everything that man had been anticipating in terms of re- redemption was complete, was, was uh, conceived with Christ, lived, lived through Christ, a sinless life, all the way to his sinless death, his false accusations, his his false conviction, his, his uh, crucifixion, his resurrection, uh, his ascension, and his pr- telling them that you shall be, uh, receive the promise of the Father not many days from now. And Pentecost happens exactly 10 days after Ascension Thursday. And it's exactly 50 days after Passover. Pentecost is the Greek name for it. And it, mean, uh, it means seven Sabbaths plus one day. And it's one of the three great Jewish festivals that the Jews uh, uh, celebrated. And hopefully we'll get into that today. So, Jesus makes it clear in John's version of the Last Supper that he's going to be with the Father, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. His ministry and his presence are going to continue exactly the same by the paracletos, the helper, translated in the King James as comforter, translated in ESV and New American Standard, and most modern translations as helper. Paracletos uh, can be translated attorney, advocate, counselor, Comfort. It's one called alongside to empower. To uh, you, you know, you could be dead right and go into court, but and but if you don't know the ways and the procedures of the court, you'll probably lose. The paracletos is the, is given to us to walk us through this life. So. Um, Now, the apostolic hermeneutic, I don't know what John Gray told us about it, but as simple as this, often um, we want to interpret scripture merely as didactic literalism, when often scripture is a historical narrative with rich symbolisms. If, uh, I always my favorite author growing up and through college was a anti-christian communist named john steinbeck and uh, who hated jesus uh, Jim casey in his book the grace of wrath has the initials jc Because he's a preacher who's a hypocrite as john steinbeck would see all christians to be. Uh That's why there's a monument to john steinbeck in red square uh, but uh but he was a great writer, <laughs> and he used powerful word pictures and imagery. Um, and so uh, the an apostolic hermeneutic starts in Luke 24, when Jesus on the road to Emmaus meets the two disciples and begins to open their mind to understand the scriptures. And then later that night, he appears in Jerusalem to all the disciples and opens their mind to understand that the whole scripture had always been about Jesus. If you ever have a chance to sell all you have and get the, you know, the two uh, podcasts for, for those lectures, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll gladly give you my house, my bank account, everything to, to have. You know, I can't wait to get to heaven and get to listen to those lectures. But that's where the apostolic hermeneutic starts, and that's where the apostles begin to use the Scripture the way Jesus used the Scripture to show that all the Scripture was symbolic and foreshadowing and about him all the way through on every page and every story. You know, uh, Abel was a type of Christ. Uh, you know, Anna, Noah was a type of Christ. The Ark was a type of the church. Uh, Joseph was one of the great types of Christ. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph are all types of Christ all the way through. Moses is a type of Christ. David's a type of Christ. And learning to see all that is what the apostolic use of Scripture was. Uh, And that's another whole discussion in itself. There, There are... Certain kinds of fundamentals and conservatives that say that we can only draw an inference of Christ from a place where the New Testament specifically does, whereas uh, the true apostolic hermeneutic is the New Testament gives us dozens and dozens and dozens of examples to, to open our eyes to how to do it all the time. So I hope that you're following what I'm talking about there. So, let's uh, see what else I can get into. Um, in Acts 1, there's the, the account of they're replacing Judas by drawing straws between, uh, I forget the one guy's name, Barnabas, and, and Matthias is the one who wins. Um, and uh, you will hear lots of evangelical preachers today say, wrongly of course, that Acts 1 was unnecessary, that what they did was, was missing the Lord, they were trying to take matters into their own hand, and God intended Paul, or Saul, who became Paul, to be that 12th apostle. Nonsense. Never assume the apostles are making a mistake in the, especially post-resurrection and post-Pentecost, unless it specifically says they are making an error, such as when Paul confronts Peter uh, when he comes to, to uh, Galatia and Peter starts withdrawing and eating with the Jewish brethren only, and Paul confronts him in his hypocrisy. But um, they were not making a mistake because if you study covenant the bible is a series of covenants it starts with what hebrews 13:20 calls the blood of the eternal covenant before there was an old testament before there was a new testament in time immemorial outside and above time before the world was created there was a covenant between the father son and holy spirit that had to do with the Son's mission to come to earth and the Holy Spirit's continuing mission to bring the Son a bride who who would then offer it to the Father. And the whole Bible is an outworking of that eternal covenant through the Old Covenant, the Noahic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, on through to the New Covenant. And even the covenant of marriage itself is symbolic of of that covenant between Christ and his church that the scripture has much to say about so in covenant uh there are about ten aspects of all uh covenants and um the closest you'll get to that out there in the in the uh, world around us is um um Ray Sutton, who is now part of the the uh, um, same Episcopalian communion that Christ, the, uh, that Wayne and Peter and all of them are part of, in his book on covenant, he sees six aspects of all biblical covenants. But there's more than six. There's a, I, you know I it depends on if you put one as a subset of another. But there's somewhere in the neighborhood of eight, ten, or twelve aspects of all covenants. And one aspect of all covenants that's very little emphasized because we live in the country where everybody did it our way and no one helped us and we pulled ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we didn't rely on community or covenant or family or, or interdependence or getting the right kind of counsel and, uh, and, and at best we turned our disciple into our chum and our buddy and uh, we don't know how to deal with the whole concept of covenant hierarchy But covenant hierarchy is in every covenant. And how you touch God's authority is how you touch God. So, um, you know, I mentioned our friend Doug Rumschlag who died. The reason he was so loved is because he was humble, gentle, sincere, honest, full of integrity, he was a great uh, example of Christlikeness. So, now, Pentecost, uh, a lot of Christians don't realize that the day of Pentecost is something important because in the Old Testament it's not called Pentecost. That's the Greek name for it. And actually, if you were to study a Hebrew Bible, Exodus isn't called exodus leviticus isn't called leviticus numbers isn't called numbers the greek names for the books usually pick a word like leviticus and name the book after a central concept the hebrew names for the books start with the first three or four words in hebrew of that book and so if you were talking to a rabbi who reads the scriptures in hebrew you wouldn't recognize the name of any of the books he's talking about nor would you recognize that Pentecost is one of the three great agricultural festivals that's talked about in Leviticus 23 and in Numbers 14 through 16, et cetera. Three, three different books and three different passages in the Old Testament command Israel to come together and celebrate before the Lord three times a year. And the first great festival is called Passover. Most of us know about Exodus 12 and the beginning of Passover. Very few know about Pentecost, because Pentecost happens seven Sabbaths after Passover plus one day, and it's called in the Bible the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Fruits, or the Feast of Harvest. And it's symbolic of that Israel was the firstfruits among the nations, all of which were going to come to God and belong to Christ. So it's a great, great celebration, and that's exactly what happens in Acts two. Is the Holy Spirit descends on all one hundred and twenty? If you notice in Acts one, there's there's two very important uh, numbers. One is twelve. Because there's 12 apostles that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel is the first nation among the nations to be devoted to God. And the end of God is going to be that all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and all will worship him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord and all the earth will enter into a triumph uh, celebrating the kingdom and, and the king. Just like the Roman generals, after they conquered a place, they would bring uh, the slaves they'd conquered and the army people they'd conquer in chains, and they'd have this big uh, parade through the streets of Rome, and they'd throw confetti on them and shout over them and so forth, and they would actually put one of the slaves of the general in the, in the um, chariot with him, and he would whisper to the general over and over, remember, you're a man and not a God. Remember, you're a man and you're not a God. Because uh, the celebration was, was similar to and foreshadowing the great celebration that awaits our king. Because he is riding on by the gospel of reconciliation and peace to conquer all peoples, every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will be filled with the glory of God. You know, one of the reasons I love being involved in India is India is about uh, 3 to 4% Christian today. I believe that by the end of this century, is, India will be 30 to 40% Christian. And by the end of the next century, India will be predominantly a Christian nation. That sort of thing is happening in China despite the communist government. They say around 30,000 people are coming to Christ a day. And I remember having this Bible study for two or three years with a, a Chinese guy named Jason at Wright State. And Jason was struggling with, when he went back to China after his, he got finished his doctorate, was he going to uh, join the state official churches or was he going to uh, join... The, the underground churches that aren't recognized by the Chinese government. And I asked him, well, which ones are more Christ-like and which ones are more filled with God's truth and God's spirit? And he said, oh, the unofficial ones. But he chose, sadly, to join a state-sanctioned church that, that the state controls what the message is. So... um. Feast of weeks, feast of harvest, feast of fruits. And it's called, I think I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew words, Shavuot. Uh It's the day of first fruits. Now, Shavat is considered the birthday of Israel, and it's the birthday of the church in Acts 2. It's God, because Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my ecclesia. And what he means is I'll build my called-out assembly of people in contradistinction to the called-out assembly of people that Moses built. Moses was used of God to build a nation. He took the, the nation of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the descendants thereof. And in the Exodus in chapter 19... God says that I'll make of you a holy nation and a royal priesthood and so forth. That's quoted of the church word for word in 1 Peter 2.9. And then God gives them the law In the rest of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers are examples of the law, that is, uh, case laws. You know, it, you know, it defines what murder is, it defines what adultery is, et cetera, etc stealing is and so forth so Exodus 19 and 20 uh, are, is what Israel was celebrating at the first Feast of First Fruits or the Feast of Shabbat the Feast of Pentecost whatever you want to call it it's called by all those names the third festival by the way is called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths depending on the translation you're using and all three of them are, are, were celebrated annually by Israel and are foreshadowings of things that God accomplished in Christ. I think all Christians are familiar m- more so that Christ is our Passover. Remember, even in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John the Baptist, when he sees Christ, says, Behold the Lamb of God, referring to the Passover Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So most Christians understand that, but most Christians don't understand that Pentecost itself was not just a thing that happened that birthed the church, but it was the fulfillment of something that had been foreshadowed in the three festivals, and it's now infused with Christ in the Spirit of God because, again, uh, the Old Testament Pentecost or Shabbat or the Feast of Weeks Was was God giving the law written on tablets of stone, commanding man's sinful hardened heart from the outside, so that our sin flattered, it was raised up by the law, and we always broke it. That's what Paul's discussing in Romans 7, as John Gregg taught us in his Roman series. But Pentecost is God taking that law. In writing it on hearts of flesh so that it becomes our inward desire and our power to do it. Are you struggling with a sin? Get filled with Pentecost power, and you won't. Learn to stay filled daily with Pentecost power, and you won't. Now, that still means you'll have to obey God in some situations. I remember... uh, my second year of graduate school, I decided not to take the assistantship and to go to work for a brother that was my roommate who owned a company called Henry & Henry Building & Painting. And the reason I went to work for him is I was very afraid of heights. And I was embarrassed by the fact that I knew nothing about tools, cars, uh, buildings, drywall, painting, I I wouldn't have been able to tell you the difference between a screwdriver and a hammer. Maybe I would have. I'm probably exaggerating a little. And I knew that there's no way to overcome a fear except consistently overcome it every day. If you're scared of heights, get a job climbing ladders. If you're scared of social gatherings, go to more social gatherings. Because perfect love casts out all fears. It get, go filled with the Spirit. The Pente- Pentecost was the undoing of everything that was lost in Eden. Now, I guess I've covered the front page. Flip over. I, was, I, I have to look at the notes once in a while because I just remember them in my head. Uh, obviously, we're only going to get through Acts 2, 1 through 4. And actually, I'm just going to discuss verse 1 and verse 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Very, Every word is important there, but I'm going to end by 12 because we're going to have communion and so forth. So I got five minutes. The Greek says kai, uh, that is, and when. Now, if you notice, the King James says and when. The modern translations do not. The New, newest, new Translation, called the New English Translation, used, says now, when the day of Pentecost had come, because Greek means a different thing by the word and than we mean by the word and. And so they translated it quite literally in King James' day because they didn't know that yet. But as more Greek documents came alive and more people learned Greek and they began to understand how the Hebrew-minded people who wrote the New Testament were using the Greek language, they realized that and simply means uh, we're going on to a new subject now built on what we just covered. So really what the word and means in, in Acts 2.1 is based on what we said in chapter 1, When the day of Pentecost came, uh, they were all together in one place. Now, they is important because the day refers to the 12, including Matthias, who were now the new federal head covenant hierarchy of the new people of God in the earth. And the day refers to the 120 that it specifically tells you in Acts 1, 14, and 15, isn't that amazing that in 1 Corinthians 15 it tells us that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people. Only 120 were impressive enough to do what he said. You think people would become Christians if they see miracles and they see Jesus risen? Not, not necessarily. That 120 people happens to be 12, the number of covenant hierarchy in Israel, times the number of 10, meaning the... Taken to the fullness. And what it's basically a foreshadowing is this is for the whole world. This is no longer for this little nation called Israel. Now the whole world is going to be invited to become the people of God. That's why there's exactly 120 of them. Biblical numbers are always very symbolic. Now, also, what's amazing is they were all together in one place. I've actually been in churches occasionally in my 45, 47 years of being a Christian now. i probably experienced five or six or seven times where everybody showed up to the meeting and no one was missing, and it was like super powerful. Really, the first miracle of Pentecost is that everybody came. (laughs) That's the first miracle. Nobody watched the video cast. Nobody stayed home. Nobody, uh, you know, slept in. I remember once I was sharing with this pretty troubled guy, and we would meet at Wendy's for lunch and stuff. And uh, back in those days, Wayne McNamara was my assistant pastor, and this guy didn't attend church, and I was real busy that day. So I said, hey, Wayne, give him a call and see if he's okay. And uh, Wayne called me later that day, and he said, yeah, he's okay. He he said that when his alarm clock went off, that he was laying in bed and the Spirit of God spoke to him and said, go back to sleep. <laughs> and I said, when my alarm clock goes off, the Spirit of God speaks that to me every day. <laughs> if I went by that, I'd never show up. Well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually just end with Acts two one. I got one verse done, and a little bit of an introduction. And I'll, I'll discuss with John whether I'm gonna finish the Acts two or have him finish Acts two. But uh, normally, I would like to share on Acts two more like six weeks from now, when we're getting closer to Pentecost. Or uh, well, let me see how many weeks would that be? That would actually be nine weeks from now. And uh, but John was doing this series on the book of Acts, so he asked me to do Acts two. Um, I would really love love with that background to go through the first thirteen or so verses, but we'll see if I can do that next week i don't I don't want to run over because it's twelve o'clock and uh I believe that we have a have dinner at twelve o'clock right <laughs> That was actually the first. I I actually died, died on this hill. You don't know this. So many people opposed this. When uh, we started this church, I decided to have a dinner every Sunday. <laughs> and uh, lots of people were not for that idea. Uh, anyway, I, I love the dinners. I hope you'll stay and get fat with me. And, uh, and it's a good way to get to know one another. So uh, who's ever in charge, come up and... Do whatever. Right. Do whatever.